Good evening. Good evening. And um, as you know, or if you weren't here for the weekend, Rob Rufus could not be with us this weekend, but this is the first time you've had his book here as well, uh, Beyond the Peripheral Fence, How to Increase in Miracles. The Peripheral Fence was a vision, a dream that Rod, uh, Rob had um, about uh, seeing that sort of next level of, of mir- the miraculous. He has many, many miraculous st- stories and testimonies. When I was in his church as a young adult, I was your age, for some of you, and um, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and um, I grew up in a church that had sort of a revival culture that Rob was leading, and I, as a young adult, I just thought, well, this is normal, you know. And uh, we, there was a, a time period where Rob uh, got up and he had a very strong word, prophetic word once he said you know you cry out for the miraculous you cry out for me to move in signs and wonders and yet why should I move if there's no one there in your midst that needs to see my glory why if if the unsaved are not in your midst why should I reveal my glory and it was like a real turning point and he was like guys we need to start inviting people to church and every week for a good six month period or something home groups would email or fax actually in those days um, lists of people that we are praying for that we say, look, if we get opportunity, we're going to invite these people to church this week. And it just meant that the preachers would come to church every Sunday knowing there is a strong possibility there's people here that have never been in church before. Well, the, the very next Sunday after that, where, where Rob's, God spoke through Rob and said, if, if you bring the lost, I will manifest my glory. Um, a couple in that church were there and they said, you know, we should invite Michelle, our next door neighbour. After all, a current affair, or today, tonight, one of those current affair shows, had her on TV last week. She's our neighbour and she's on TV because she had this really weird disease where all the joints in her body would, um, would, would cramp up. So she'd have to have three physiotherapists or something work on her for three hours to straighten her out and then over the next week or two she'd all cramp back up, Right. And so, hey, yeah, thank God I've got the stool, you know. And they invite her along and her boyfriend pushes her into the service and she's sitting there the whole time and afterwards our friends from our church push her up the front for Rob. Everyone in the church is gone except there's about 20 of us left behind and Rob begins to pray for her and uh, he just says, Holy Spirit, come upon this woman. And she says, she starts shaking, her head and body starts shaking and she says, I'm not coming out. And Rob looks at her and goes, oh, I'm from Africa. You don't scare me. I know your type. And just very gently and very calmly, because he was dealing with a precious person. He says, Holy Spirit, come upon this woman. He speaks to the demon. It comes out. Man's voice. Right. And slowly and surely, her body begins to straighten. She walked her wheelchair out of that building. And, And there's only 20 of us watching. All right, glory of God came on her, Holy Spirit presence just manifested like that. And three weeks later, four weeks later, a current affair, or today, tonight, whichever show it was, came into our church, started filming, and went back on a national television. And she's on TV, kicking a soccer ball around with her kids. And uh, doctors going, well, there's no such thing as miracles. So we, can, we can't say it's a miracle, but it sure is an amazing recovery. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and then interviewing one of the pastors from our church. Well, why do I say that? Rob has walked in a realm of the miraculous for many years. And, uh, and, and this is uh, something of his story about going to the next level in that kind of, that kind of ministry. And my wife, uh, Jay, who can't be with us this year, I think she's been to two Grace and Glories out of the ten, something like that. 
and of course, uh, co-founding with Catherine, Wild, Strong and Free. You girls do a conference here called Wild, Strong and Free. We started that together, Bayside Church and your church, all right, with my wife and uh, with Catherine. And uh, Jay's written a book called A Glorious Canvas. I was speaking to a bro here last night who was saying this is his wife's favourite book and she returns to again and again. It basically uses the rainbow, the pictures of the rainbow, to tell the gospel story, uh, the colours of the rainbow. How many of you know the rainbow is a beautiful picture that belongs to God's covenant people? And, uh, and it can. she uses that. Okay, 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 hang on, hang on. <laughs> and she uses that to, uh, to declare, to bring the gospel, as well as sharing stories from her life of growing up in Africa and stuff like that. All right. But tonight, I'm going to do something different. You're basically a home crowd. Okay. You've got over the depression of this morning and you've come to church twice and you're the serious people. And so I, I am going, uh, I want to sit down tonight. I've done, like Sam just said, I've done two big epic meta-narrative teachings and those are going to, tonight's going to build on that. Uh, for those of you who saw my Lamb of God teaching and this morning the Three Covenants teaching, I'll explain some of the reasons that that stuff is important uh, because tonight I want to look at some of the stuff out of my book, You Can Handle the Truth. I want to look at a technical term, a subject called exegesis, which I'll discover in a moment. And I just want to talk to you like mature Bible reading adults. Now, you might be here and you might be a French speaker and only follow Jesus for six weeks, okay? Uh, I understand that. I understand. I understand. Oh, no, I know. Très bien. I understand that some of you uh, may be new to the Bible, uh, but tonight I'm going to speak to you like mature Christians. Okay, so that's sort of my level I'm going for on the Sunday night crowd. I'm going to sit down. I'm not here to impress you. I'm showing you my knees and we'll just go from there. All right, there you go. So, um, so basically what I'm going to do is I'll start with the scripture because that's always a good place to begin. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, you get that? You don't tell that old pastor's joke about him being the shortest man in the Bible, do you? Nehemiah? That you wouldn't do that? Because it's not true. There is a guy in the Bible who is uh, a Shuite. So he was really small. That is... Who's on the drums? Get that cymbal cranking. It's more where that came from. Don't you worry. (laughs) <laughs> Look, I've grown up, it's like some of you, I've grown up in a Christian family, I grew up with a knowledge of the scripture, I've grown up in church, I've probably heard thousands and thousands of sermons, I have had the privilege of pastoring a church for 20 years, um, I have the, the, the blessing um, of having a half decent intellect, okay, uh, and a temperament and a gifting that enables me to understand the scripture, um, and I've had time, because I've been a paid pastor for many years, that I've actually literally been paid to read the Bible. Most of you haven't. Okay, most of you haven't. That's not your privilege. You've got other privileges that, that I don't have, but that's not your privilege. But I would like to encourage you, and the reason that I've written this book and entitled it, You Can Handle the Truth, is to say that no matter how complicated or confusing or convoluted or apparently contradictory at times the Bible may seem, no matter how hard it might be at times, it is not too difficult for you. 
You don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to have gone to Bible college. You don't need to be a guy like, oh, wow, I just watched Chad do it. How could I? I'd never be able to, I'd never understand the Bible. No, 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 no. You can handle the truth. And it's okay that different people have different measures of understanding and, and see things that you don't. That's the way it's meant to be. That's why we need each other, okay? That's why we need community. God puts us into community to help us understand the Bible in a more holistic way. You are going to see things in the Bible that I'll never see, and that's the way God wants it. We need each other. And so I don't care who your favorite Bible teacher is, and I don't care how impressed you might be by certain preachers. No pastor, preacher, or PhD in the Scripture knows it all. We all need each other because uh, the Bible is a community book. So you don't look at a guy that you think might be a good Bible teacher and go, I'll never be able to do that. I'm not even going to try. No, 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 you can. You can handle the Bible. It is written for you, and you do have what it takes Okay, to get to know God through the Scripture. And even tonight, as I come and I'm like, I'm going to teach stuff around the Bible, my goal is never to know more about the Bible. That is not the end goal. The end goal is always to know God more, okay, to draw nearer to him. And last night, I mean, even the Lamb of God thing, you're like, yeah, I learned something last night, but what did it do for my heart? It, I, we fed on the Lamb, okay? We didn't just learn about him, we ate him. And, you know, I just said to Catherine, what does that do now? Every time you sing a song about the Lamb, you're going to be like, this, I, I, I'm there, right? You know, I'm, I'm engaging with the Lamb of God. So Bible knowledge itself, knowledge puffs up, love builds up, and knowledge itself is not a means to an end the bible is there to draw us to jesus um, so why do i say all that because ultimately your goal is not to know the bible better your goal is to know god better and do you know what as much as i love the scriptures i also understand that abraham walked with god and he never had a bible now that won't be your story because god's given you the bible okay you do have the bible but you don't need to be a bible expert to know God but I appreciate that this church no matter where you're at in your stage has a hunger to know God more first and foremost and you know we get to know him more through the scripture so of course we're hungry for the Bible I just say that to say don't be impressed by other people and depressed that you're not like that you can do it you can handle it with who you are in your temperament God can speak to you through the scripture okay all of us so let's go Nehemiah chapter 8 and this is about 444 years BC. Um, Nehemiah is in charge of rebuilding the city. They've just finished the temple. It's been destroyed and then they've come back and they've rebuilt it. Okay, Ezra, Nehemiah and Ezra are basically working together hand in hand and they have this big church service here in Nehemiah 8. I'm reading from a version of the Bible that's on the screen. It's known as the CSB. All the people gathered together in the square in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, Ezra read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men and women and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkah and Messiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Padiah, Misha, Bill, Jod and Jane and Mary. <laughs> There's some baby names for you, uh, yeah, for those of you looking. Ezra, Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people. 
since he was elevated above everyone. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Bro, there was a, there's conferences I've been to here. There was a time where you'd read the Bible and everyone would stand up. Do you still do that? Do you do that? Wow. So that, that's not a Dutch thing. Hey? I asked you that. Why did you do that? Honor for the scripture. There you go. There you go. It's right there. All the people stood up. Ezra blessed Yahweh. They go, well, if you're going to do that, then I need a high wooden platform. No. All right, let's try to do it. All right, let's do the actions. Let's do the actions here. <laughs> Otherwise, you just, oh, the Bible reading. No, let's go. Um, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Oh, you're reading, are you? No, 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 this is not your bit yet. Your bit's coming up. Don't read until it's your bit. Ezra, bless the Lord, the great God. Yahweh, I bless you in Jesus' name. And with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen. They knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Very interactive. Very good. Okay, next verse. Then Jeshua, Benai, Sharaba and Jamin, where are you? No, I'm not sure who you are. Okay. And all these guys who were Levites uh, <laughs> explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. Wow, these guys are standing and explaining the law. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. No, 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 no. No, listen, don't do that. Go and eat what is rich. Drink what is sweet and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Don't grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, shush, 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 saying, be still, this day is holy, don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions and make great celebrations. Because they understood the word. Of the, there you go. Well done. We acted that out so brilliantly. <laughs> Never done that before. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, visitors. Um, <laughs> this, this, okay, so here you go. What we see here in Nehemiah and Ezra is a very... Um, simple three-step process in handling the Scriptures well. Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites here, they read the Scripture, translating it. Okay, so they read the Scripture so that the people could understand. Because the Bible that they had, the Scripture that they had, was written in the Hebrew language. And the people that were there at that day had been in captivity in Babylon for 60, 70, whatever years. They did not understand all of them Hebrew. So these Levites had the Hebrew language and they had to translate it into the language of the day. So they translated the Bible. The same is true for you and me. The Bible was not written in English. It was not written in Kiwi. It was not written in French. It was not written in Indian or whatever Tamil or whatever language you, you speak in Chinese. It wasn't written in Australian, that's for sure. The Bible's written in foreign languages. We need to read it in a translation that makes sense to us. That's the first step of understanding the Bible. You've got to read it. 
The second thing they did is they explained the meaning. Actually, put that next slide up. Yeah. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating it. They read the book. The next thing they did is they read out of the book of the law of God, translating it, and gave the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. It's one thing to know what the Bible says. It's another thing to have it explained to you so that you know what it means. Yeah. It's like in any relationship. You know, your, your wife can, or your husband can say something and you hear something and you think, I don't know what he means. You know the words that came out of his mouth, but you don't know the meaning. Okay? And you can have an argument about what he meant when he said. None of that's ever happened to you. It happens to other people, right? But what is said and what is meant. Okay? This is the second step. The, the Levites not only needed to read the Bible, they then explained the meaning. Hello, everyone. This is what this means. We're reading the book of Moses in a language you understand, but we're going to explain the meaning to you. And then last day, last thing they had to do is they said, this day is holy for the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep because all the wrong way. And so these guys had to train them to say, listen, it's right to respond to the Bible, but here's the proper response for you in the context of which we are in today. They were all mourning and weeping and the Levites said, no, that's not the right response. So what we see here is a very simple three-step process to handling the Bible. The first thing is you've got to read it. Then you reflect on it. You reason your way to understand what it means. You think about the scripture. And then you respond to it. Read, reflect, respond. And I like to phrase these three steps into three questions. God is not afraid of, us, of you asking questions. Best way to learn, ask questions. When we approach the Bible, we're to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? What does it say? Well, you read it. That's pretty straightforward. But you need to read it well. What does it say? And then you ask, well, what does that mean? What does it mean? And then you ask, well, what does it matter? Okay? So I know Acts chapter 2 says... On the day of Pentecost had fully come, they all gathered together in one place, and then they heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire appeared on them, they appeared drunk, and Peter got up and said, this is that spoken by the prophet Joel. I know that's what Acts chapter 2 says. But what does that mean? What does it mean that when the day of Pentecost come, they were all gathered together in one place, and they heard the sound of a rushing wind, filled the place where they were sitting? What place were they sitting? What place were they sitting? Does it mean that they were sitting in an upper room? Because in Acts chapter 1, it says that they all stayed together in an upper room in Jerusalem. But if you read Luke 24, it said that, that when they were there in Jerusalem, they gathered every day at the temple and worshipped. So were they in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, were they in a house that could fit 150 people? And somehow 3,000 people saw them in the house in the middle of the city? Or were they actually in the temple? Because the word house is also used for the word temple in the Gospels and in Acts. Were they actually in the temple? Did the Holy Spirit fulfill the word of Ezekiel, the prophet, where he said the temple, the mighty rushing water of God, would come out of the temple and into the nations? Did God actually pour the Holy Spirit out while... The disciples were gathering and worshipping God in the temple courts. And it's why in the temple, that's why 3,000 people could see them because it was so full of people that day. Is that what it means? 
I don't know. It says they were all sitting in a house. Was that house a private house or was it the temple? Well, I don't know. I know what the Bible says, but I'm not really sure what it means. We've got to research that a little bit more. And then it says they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that came to rest on them. I know that's what the Bible says, but what does that mean? Well, I grew up in a Christian family and I was given a, a little a picture Bible book as a kid. Right? And in all the picture Bible books that I was ever given, the day of Pentecost had a little flickering flame on the disciples' heads. Okay, that's what it So when it says the Holy Spirit, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire on them, that's what those illustrators think that that means. But it doesn't say they saw tongues of fire rest on their heads. It says they saw tongues of fire rest, rest on them. What does that mean? mean well if you read the gospels john the baptizer said what i'm doing with you with water jesus will do with the holy spirit and fire now how many of you know when john the baptist baptized people in water he didn't just give them a little sprinkle on the head it wasn't a little brill cream theology a little dabble do you uh, he dunged those people fully in water they came out and they were covered from head out of their nose out of their ears all over them from head to toe they were covered in water and John the Baptist said what I'm doing with water Jesus will do with Holy Spirit and fire so I know that Acts says the Holy Spirit came on them but does that mean there was a little flickering flame on their heads or does that mean that people looked at them and they were literally from the soles of their feet to the top of their head they were walking around like pillars of fire on them I don't know. I know that's what's I know what it says, but what does it mean? Well, let's, let's, we can talk about that, can't we? And we can research and we can reason away through that. And then, of course, Peter gets up and he says, This is that spoken by the prophet Joel. Then in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, I know that's what it says, but what does last days actually mean? Does it mean the last days of the month? Does it mean the last days of winter? Does it mean the last days of some type of calendar? The last days of that festival? Does it mean the last days of human history? Does it mean the last days of the old covenant era? Because that was coming to end. I know it says the last days, but what does that mean? And then he says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now, I know that's what it says, but what does that mean? Does it mean that only Jewish people, because it was only Jewish people there at the time, and that's who Joel was speaking to, is it only that Jewish sons and daughters would prophesy, but nobody else? Is that what it means? And it doesn't say your grandkids will prophesy, it just says your sons and daughters. So does that mean that only one, the prophecy would end after one generation? Was it sons and daughters mean... All your sons and daughters will prophesy of all who believe. Well, I, I know what it says, but what does it mean? Oh, it just got quiet in here, didn't it? Because this is where a lot of church disagreement, division comes in. You see, we've all got the same Bible. We all know what it says. But we come to different conclusions as to what that means. And this second process is so important in understanding the Bible. Okay, and a lot of particularly people in our Pentecostal churches, not like this one, but in Pentecostal churches, we tend to just read what the Bible says, skip this point entirely and go straight to application. Therefore, this is what you do. 
okay? Whereas we don't treat people like intelligent adults and work out, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but let's have a look at what it means. Let's work out what it means. I know Peter said the moon will turn to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord as he keeps preaching, but what does that mean? Does it literally mean that that rock in the night sky will turn into hemoglobin and blah, 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 and like literally just turn into blood? How does a moon, big rock turn into blood? Does it, or does it just mean it will go red? And are these YouTube American prophecy pundits all right every time the moon goes red and they think, well, that's it turning to blood. Is that what it means? So you can see that this is not necessarily a simple process. Okay? We all know what the Bible says, but it is, sometimes it takes some work to work out what it means. And this process, before we ever get to application, is known as exegesis. Our point is to discover what did the author mean when he said that. It doesn't matter what the Bible means to you. It matters what it meant to him, what it means to the author. Okay, now how the Bible matters to you, that matters to you differently than it might to me. But what it means is set in history. And this is our goal as we read, is to work out what the Bible means. Well, in my book, I look at four different essential things we should consider as we're trying to work out what the Bible means. And I call them the ABCs of exegesis. We should consider four things. A, the author and audience. As you read the scripture, when you're trying to work out, "Mm, what does that mean? You should discern who's speaking and who are they speaking to. Who are they speaking to? Okay, it's really important, author and audience. The second thing we should consider is the big picture background. Sam mentioned the term earlier, the meta-narrative. And look at a little bit of that tonight, the meta-narrative. So when you're reading a piece of scripture, you know where it fits in the big picture view of God's story. The big picture. Where does that fit in the big picture? That's going to help me understand what I'm reading. The third thing, another thing that we could consider is to corroborate your content. I'm going to be talking about this tonight. It means that when you read a scripture, you don't come to a conclusion on an issue unless you can corroborate it with a few other scriptures. You don't just launch out on a belief because you read half a verse somewhere. Because you could be really mishandling the word and yes, I know what the Bible said, but hang on, hang on. You've got to compare scripture with scripture to really know what that means. We're going to look at that tonight. And lastly, we consider the style of speech. I know Jesus said that you should cut off your hands and pluck out your eyes. But what does that mean? I know Jesus said, forgive your brother 70 times, seven times. But what does that mean? mean is it possible jesus was using a figure of speech is it possible that the moon turning to blood while it says that it doesn't mean the rock in the night sky is going to literally turn to red blood that that might be speaking of something else it might be something metaphoric about that imagery because it's using poetic or prophetic styles of speech okay We don't have time to look at all of this. I dissect this in the book. But tonight, and because of the way that this weekend has gone with the other messages, I guess the two things I want to really leave you with is about about how important it is to understand the big picture story of the Bible. How many of you got that last night with the Lamb of God and Covenant? Like, Just understand the big picture. Aha, I've read these scriptures. Now I have a greater understanding of what it means. You see, a lot of people, they get stuck in the detail of scripture 
and they lose the forest because of the trees. And we need to take a bird's eye view and have a look because everything that the Bible presents to us has a backdrop to it, has a, a background to it. And we can only make sense of that thing when we understand the background. How many of you remember this guy? His name's Mo Farah. Any, any of you recognize this athlete here? 2012 Olympics, around about the time this church started, this guy is an English runner and he won the five and 10,000 races at the London Olympics. And he was made famous because of that look on his face. I mean, that is a classic look, right? And the reason it was made famous is because people thought it would be really funny to take his image and to superimpose it on other backdrops. And so it came, they come up with stuff like this. All right. Running for balls. Next one. Okay, well, that makes sense. Next one. <laughs> Dinosaur. <laughs> Africa there, yeah. And it's freaky as all heck. The point is, if you were to ask the question, why is this guy running like this? Well, your answer would change according to your understanding of the backdrop. To only really know the meaning of that expression on his face, to only really know the meaning of why he has that look on his face, you've got to see him in the original context. You've got to understand the backdrop, go back to the original and you realise, aha, I can see what's going on. This guy's not running away from Teletubbies. He's obviously <laughs> in some kind of you know, international competition because I understand the backdrop. I'm not just taking the, the story or the Bible instruction or, the, or the, the, the quote or the verse in the Bible that I'm reading. I'm understanding it with the big backdrop, the big picture in mind. And when it comes to the big picture, this is where we have the thing, the old real estate rule. You know, there's, there's three great rules of real estate. Location, location, location. There's three great rules of exegesis, of understanding what the Bible means, and it is context, 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 okay? You've got to take the verse and understand the context. Well, there's essentially three main contexts to consider when you understand the backdrop of the Bible. In my mind, they're the things like the context of covenant, understanding what covenant the story you're reading in is a part of, understanding the context of chronology, the big Bible story and how it goes from, from start to finish, and also understanding the, 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 the context of culture, okay? Because a lot of the stuff you read in the Bible is weird. Washing feet, okay, is pretty weird. Um, sacrificing animals, pretty weird. But if you understand the backdrop of culture, those things are suddenly not as weird, okay? Because there's a cultural backdrop to it. Well, I think this weekend, we've probably, I'm not going to do anything about culture, I think we've probably walked away, hopefully, with a better understanding of the context of covenant and the context of culture. And one of the best ways for me just to explain how these things help our understanding of a topic or a theme in the Bible is just to show you some ideas. So let's just go to this next, uh, this next slide here. What have we got? The Bible's big picture. How does the Bible's big picture help us understand the Lamb of God? Well, we saw that last night. 
didn't we? You come to the John the Baptist who says, behold the Lamb of God, and you realize, oh yeah, I've got some understanding of what Lamb of God means, but how do you really know what Lamb of God means? Well, you step back and you have a look at the Bible's big picture, and you understand that Lamb of God began, began, began here in Genesis, then Exodus, then Leviticus, then, then uh, what was it, Isaiah, and then goes on all the way through to Revelation. As of last night, many of you guys have a much bigger picture idea of what the Lamb of God means, so when the angels worship the lamb who's seated on the throne and you join in that song, it means a whole lot more to you than what it ever did before because you've understood something of the big picture view. There's a big backdrop to that. Okay, We are all Bible people. You understand that big history. We understand that a lot better. When you read something about God's presence or something about sacred space, Okay, you don't just read one scripture about God's presence. We think, hang on, there's a whole story of the Bible that's about God dealing with his people. And when you understand the big uh, something, at least some better idea of the big picture view of the Bible, you see something of progression about God presencing himself in a garden, then presencing himself in a tent, okay, or in a box even, presencing himself in a temple. And then ultimately presencing himself on this side of the story, once we get to the New Testament, where? inside people yeah that we are the temple of God so we under so you don't just read this part of the Bible God's in a temple and hope one day another temple will be rebuilt so you can get there and meet God okay no you we understand there is a story of the scripture God's presence this this theme develops through the scripture and because I have a big picture view I've got a better appreciation of that theme a few years ago Number four, I came here and I did a message on the brides of Christ, or the God's brides. Do you remember that with the Barbie dolls? Was anyone here when I preached with Barbie dolls? Yeah, all right, that was awesome. <laughs> Terry remembers that one. When we read in the New Testament, like you're reading Ephesians 4, and your like, husbands love your wives, Christ love the church, is Christ love the church? We are the bride of Christ. That is not a new idea, God's people being his bride. Big picture perspective. This is where you do a Bible study and you realize, hang on, there's actually a whole history of God's people being his wife all through the Bible. It's a whole history of that. We looked at that a few years ago, about how God actually married his people uh, when they came out of Egypt and he made a covenant with them. It was a covenant of marriage. That as they go and as they, those kingdoms become two kingdoms, he talks in the, in the prophets about them being two sisters that he was married to two sisters, as it were, that he divorces one and, separate, and separates himself from the other. And then he comes and a bride is birthed from the side of Jesus when he says, it is finished. A new bride is birthed, which is us today. Okay, So there's, there are themes like this that run all the way through the scripture. And Chad, why are you saying this? Because when you read something in the New Testament and you're trying to work out what does that mean to be the bride of Christ? What does that mean? One of the best ways for you to understand what that means is to take a step back and look at the rest of the Bible. If you can, go study the rest of the scripture and see if that is a developing theme throughout. All right, And that will help you understand something of where we are today. Because the Bible is one story. And there are many threads and there are many themes. There are many motifs. There are many others I don't have on the board here. But there is one story and being a big picture people will help us understand where those pieces fit and how those pictures develop just go back to that last last one methods and modes of worship 
Over here, animal sacrifices. Over here, animal sacrifices. Over here, David starts to sing with instruments, doesn't he? And he introduces instruments to the temple. And then you remember, oh, Moses actually sang a song, so this isn't brand new. He sang a song, it was actually always there, but animals were the main thing. And then David's here. And then we get to the cross, and guys like Paul say, you know that whole animal thing when you read the book of Hebrews and others? That whole animal sacrifice thing is over now. Don't do that. So this revelation of worshipping God with sacrificing animals comes to the cross and it needs to be explained again in light of what happened at Calvary. On this side of the cross, sacrifices changes totally. You know what doesn't change? Worshipping God with musical instruments and song. And so, worshipping God with musical instruments and song, all the psalms, worshipping with gladness, clap your hands, bow down, get on your knees, lift a shout, blow the trumpet, blah, 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 all that stuff from the psalms, that all comes to the cross. And do you know what the apostles say in light of what the cross has done about worshipping the song? They say nothing. Now, some churches will say, guess what? The New Testament doesn't talk about worshipping God in song so we shouldn't do it because there is no mention there is worshipping God in song in Colossians and Ephesians but there is no mention in the New Testament of worshipping God with instruments and so there are certain sects S-E-C-T-S or cults okay there are certain sects or cults of Christianity that read the New Testament and they go there's no mention of musical instruments therefore That means we should not worship God with musical instruments. No, there doesn't need to be any explanation about musical instruments because worshipping God with instruments and song comes to the cross and nothing changes. It passes through. It's like the cross is a filter. All right? Animal sacrifices doesn't get through and it needs explanation. Okay? Male circumcision to belong to God's people is a sign of covenant membership. Okay, male circumcision is required. Observing Sabbath is required. I can show you scriptures. You must be circumcised. I can show you scriptures that say, you must observe my Sabbath. It's a condition of the covenant. And then we get to the cross and circumcision and Sabbath has to be rewritten about because something radically changed. Someone came to me the other day and said, I've got a family member who says you must observe the Sabbath. You know why? Because that's what the Bible says. But it says that in this period of history. And then by the time we get after the cross, the epistles have to say, don't let anyone judge you by a new moon or a Sabbath observance or anything like that. Yes, it's in the Bible. What does it mean? Well, it meant to these people in this part of history that that was part of their covenant. They better well obey the Sabbath or they'd be in trouble. But on this side of the cross, those things are rewritten and revisited because God has a progressive story he's unfolding and we need to see the Bible as one big picture. And so on this side of the cross, what is the sign of the covenant? As he has loved you, so you love others. As he has loved you. On this side of the cross, the covenant is making sure that you are being loved by Jesus. 
and out of being loved by Jesus as he's loved you, so you now love others. So methods and modes of worship, what it means to belong in community, these things change over time. And it's not because God has changed. It's because God is telling a story. And the story is progressing through history. And so over here, when you get to something like tithing, and you read scriptures about tithing, about being cursed if you don't tithe, Yes, that is in the Bible. Yes, it is God's word. But you don't take that and go, what does that mean? And how does it matter to me today? I need to stand back and have a big look view if I'm going to study tithing and understand the big story picture. And when I do that, I see that over here, Abraham tithes out of his own initiative because he'd won a battle. God blessed him. He saw a king priest and he said, I'm going to honor you with 10%. Boom. On his own initiative, God didn't even tell him to do it. God blessed him and he honoured Melchizedek by tithing. His son Jacob goes to sleep one night, has a dream, wakes up. God was in this place. I saw heaven and earth reaching with a staircase. And he says, this place is the house of God. And since God will be with me for the rest of my life, I will tithe everything God ever gives me, I will tithe. Now Melchizedek wasn't in that story, but what was the house of God? We see something building here. There's, there's, a, there's a building story. Abraham tithed once to a guy called Melchizedek. His grandson promised to tithe for the rest of his life and somehow associated it with God's house. You now come into the era of Moses and they set up a tabernacle. And in order to fund, to get the tabernacle work, working, the Levites needed to do that as a full-time job. So Moses said, tithe so the Levites can do their job in the temple. What's he doing? He's taking this idea of the house of God. He's taking this idea of honoring the priest, okay? And he's building on it. And he's saying the Levites are doing that job. So let's tithe so they can do their job. As you keep reading, it changes again. Because by the time they get to the promised land, they're not going to have a tabernacle anymore. They're going to have a temple. And they're not going to be traveling with this tent. They're going to be living in their own farms, kilometers hundreds of kilometers away from the temple and every year they're going to come to the temple to worship and so God says listen what I want you to do is I want you to tithe so that in wherever whatever village you're living in you eat the tithe with the lonely and with the widows and with the Levites in your town you actually eat your own tithe now over here he didn't say that over here it all went to the Levites but over here, he said, you eat your tithe there. What, what is he doing? He's saying, no matter where you live, you, your tithe will support worship in your community. And then every third year or whatever it is, you then come to the temple and you bring your tithe there and you worship together at the temple. What is this? This revelation is building. It's got something to do with honoring a king and priest. It's got something to do with the house of God. And if that house of God is traveling, it's got something to do with the Levites. But it's also not just them doing their job. It's whatever it takes for us to gather together to worship God, to gather together and worship. We are building a house. We're gathering together to worship and I'm eating and you're eating and everyone's eating and our funds come together to support this thing and then by the way in this period if you don't do it you'll be cursed and why does that make sense because that's the covenant they're in in that period and so then we come over here to this side of the cross and do you know how much the new testament authors write about tithing almost nothing which is why there's a bit of uncertainty in christian circles about what we're supposed to do with it as a christian 
But it's a bit like worship in song, isn't it? Or worship in music. There is no mention in the New Testament about worshiping God with musical instruments. And it's not because we don't do that anymore. It's because they didn't feel the need to revisit it because that musical instruments passed through the cross and it was something that just continued. We keep doing what we've been doing for hundreds of years. We keep doing that in light of the cross. So why didn't they write about tithing? Why don't the apostles say, don't tithe anymore, that's under the curse, that's all old covenant, get rid of it. No, they don't even mention it. Is it because tithing passes cleanly through the cross? And of course, the curse of not tithing goes. We know that because the old covenant's no longer, it's totally obsolete now. But the practice of tithing was before the law. It started with Abraham, who wasn't commanded to tithe. It was out of his initiative. He'd met God. God blessed him. He wanted to honour the king, honour the priest. He wanted, Isaac wanted to build God's house. I'll tithe. Even if I'm not told to do it, I'll do it. Why? Because I'm a person of faith. These people tithe to support the house so that we could worship together. God's house could be built. Yes, there was curse involved for them, but that was the covenant they were in. But it still was this thing about building God's house. So over here in the New Testament, it's not spoken about much, but maybe it doesn't need to be. Because maybe it's just enough for Paul to say, Abraham is your father and you are to follow in the footsteps of your father's faith who wasn't told what he needed to do all the time. He wasn't cursed if he didn't. He just responded to a God who blessed him and one of the most natural things for him to do was to tithe to God. Is that why? So we don't just take, am I running out of voice? I was going to sit down and be really calm tonight. Like I didn't want to do this. I wore a long shirt because I knew I don't want to sweat. I'm just going to be cool. I'm just going to sit down. I just can't help it. What's the point, preacher? Well, don't just take one verse. If you're going to look something up, don't just take the one verse. Don't just take Malachi. Don't just take numbers or whatever. That's, that's tithing. No, no, no. Step back and have a look at how that subject develops over time. Consider the context of chronology because the perp, the, what they spent tithing on changed over time. In David's era, in Nehemiah, they paid musicians. Moses didn't. They just paid the Levites. But David brings in worship. And now the tithe is used to support worshippers in the temple as well as... So this tithing actually changes. It develops because we change, because people just change, because needs change. And so it does show this flexibility in how this tithing thing is spent. But what it does also show is that it's consistent through the covenants. So having a big picture view helps you to understand a topic and a theme. We don't just latch on to one verse. We stand back and we watch how that thing develops today. And we therefore make sure we don't make rash conclusions like the Bible, New Testament doesn't say we worship God with instruments. So if you have instruments in your church, you're not New Testament. No, it doesn't need to be written about in the New Testament because it passes through the cross. It's got nothing to do with covenant. Okay, it's got to do with honouring God. This is all part of our history. And just because we are not under the old covenant, it doesn't mean we ignore the Old Testament. Because we are an all Bible people. All the Bible is useful. All the Bible is helpful. We don't say, I only read the New Testament or I only read the bits in red or whatever. No, all the Bible is for us. But we do need to be careful. In our application and understanding what it means just to understand things like chronology and understand something like covenant. <laughs> last, 
Last thing. I, I might only have time for one example. Corroborate your content. Remember I said there's four things about context that, no, understanding what the Bible means, the author and audience, big picture background, corroborating content. When you're unclear on the meaning of a scripture or you encounter a passage that appears inconsistent with another, how many of you has that ever happened to you? Yeah, that seems like that's not in line with what I just read last Thursday, right? You must refrain from jumping to conclusions or allowing the obscure to trump the clear. Let everything be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The point is, allow the scripture to explain itself. Use the Bible as its own interpreter. Use the Bible as its own interpreter. When you're trying to work out what does that passage mean, you allow scripture to interpret scripture. For example, We've probably only got time for two of these. Who is saved? <laughs> well, I can show you right now that only people who speak in tongues are saved. Because in Acts 2, God pours out his spirit, I've been talking about it tonight, Pentecost, they speak in tongues and Peter gets up and he goes, this promise is for you. If you repent and are baptised, you too will receive the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. Repent. Be baptised, speak in tongues, and you'll be saved. So only those people who are baptised in water and speak in tongues are saved. That's my conclusion. And if you're in Adelaide, you'd start a cult based on that one verse. Because we have a cult in Adelaide based on that one verse. If you're not baptised in water, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And people that have come out of that church tell me, Acts 2.38 is preached at every single service. Why? Because they take one verse and they build their whole theology of salvation on one scripture. They don't compare it with the broad swath of all other New Testament scriptures that speak about what it means and how, who is saved. I can show you right now that everybody on the whole planet is saved automatically. Because Romans says... Romans 5 that says just as one man's sin and all became all became sinners so one man's act of righteousness all will be declared righteous and on that one verse that one sentence I can develop a theology that said the moment Jesus died everybody throughout human history is saved we're all going to heaven but does that match a whole bunch of other scriptures that talk about the necessity of believing and trusting in Jesus? Well, no, you've got to corroborate your content. Don't just read one sentence and one verse and make a whole conclusion on that. Let everything be established in the presence of two or three sentences. Don't just go off on one single verse. What, what, other, what other examples should we look at? Huh? That's right. And because you're right, I'm going to completely ignore you. Because you should not have spoken. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 and 35, Paul says, well, I'm going to open, open it up and have a read. I didn't know where we're going to go tonight, so these verses won't be on the screen, but you understand the concept. 
1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. What have we got here? Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful. It is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Well, obviously, I could, we could take that scripture and we could draw the conclusion that what you just did was disgraceful to speak in church. Now, that sounds like a pretty serious conclusion. And when we come across something difficult like that, we've got a few options. Number one is just to read over it really quickly and get to a better bit of the Bible, right? <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, yeah, just say, I'll just get to a bit of the highlighted. Oh, no, I'll just read over it. The other thing we could do is go, well, that's just too hard. I'll never understand it. So forget about it. Put your head in the sand. The other thing you could do is draw a conclusion and say, that's it. It's in the Bible. Shush. <laughs> or you could be a good student and you could go, I wonder what that means. Because I know what the Bible says. I just read it. But what does that mean? And I'm not questioning the Bible. I'm questioning the meaning. I'm trying to work out what does it mean. Because I've read enough of the Bible already now to know that this seems a little inconsistent. In fact, I've been reading 1 Corinthians because you never just read a verse on its own. 1 Corinthians 14 comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. I've read that whole letter. And in that whole letter, Paul talks about women praying in church. Okay. In that letter, he talks about women prophesying in church. And now he seems to say women should be silent. Well, how do they do that? Are they like Hannah in the Old Testament? <laughs> They're allowed to prophesy and pray, but nothing's allowed to come out. What do we conclude? What is that? I've read the Gospels and I've read the book of Acts and I know that women speak and teach. I know that Priscilla and Aquila, her name first, took Apollos, who was a powerful preacher, and Priscilla said, come here we lad. And she explained to him the scripture. She taught him the Bible, as good a preacher as he was, she taught him. I also know that it was the girls that were there with Jesus who were the first to believe. They were the first to declare the Gospel. And Jesus didn't say, Shut up, woman. So how can this be consistent? Because truth needs to, should be consistent. Old and New Testament have female leaders, Miriam, Deborah, Junie and Phoebe, blah, blah, blah. So I'm certainly not going to make a conclusion from that one verse. So what I need to do is I just need to dig a little deeper. And there are different theories about this. Because let's all admit it's a difficult passage. And it's okay to admit that. Okay, it is okay to say, okay, that's a bit tough. And it's not tough because, you know, there's strong women around. It's just tough. Like, it's actually tough. Us, the girls in the room would go, yeah, that's actually tough. Like, help me understand because ultimately God's in charge of his church and I'll say yes, God, to whatever you say, but it seems a little weird to me, all these inconsistencies. What does Paul mean? Well, one of the theories, and the one that I lean towards, is that Paul is actually quoting somebody in the Corinthian church who believed this. And the reason that's a running theory, and I explain this in my book, the reason that's a running theory is because as you read Corinthians, 
he basically, his whole letter is a bunch of copy and pasting from their letter to him. Corinthians, they write a letter to Paul. Here's a whole bunch of issues. People are getting drunk. People are sleeping with temple prostitutes. People are arguing. People are taking each other to court. What should we do, Paul? What should we do? What should we do? And so Paul responds to those issues. And sometimes he responds by quoting their letter. Their letter. So he'll say, food for the stomach and stomach for food. Quote. And then Paul would say, yeah, but God's going to destroy them both. The Corinthians say, I can do all things are lawful for me. And Paul says, all things are lawful for me, quote, yeah, but I'll not be mastered by anything. So Paul quotes them back to them. And so one of the theories is that this he's actually quoting a prophet in that church, someone in that church that has said women should speak. And then what he does is he goes, yeah, but no. So we keep reading women should be silent in the churches they're not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says do you know where in the old testament it says that women should not speak nowhere the law does not say women should not speak now paul should know that he's a pharisee okay if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church then the next verse says this Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, they would be ignored. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. In the most literal versions, the RSV, after he says women... uh, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. There's an expletive. It's almost, and, and in, in, in RSV it's translated, what? Did the word of God originate with you? So one of the theories is that Paul is copying and pasting. Someone in the Corinthian church has said, and he's just rewriting it. He's writing it out. It's on their letter, copy, paste. Women should be silent in the church. The law says they should talk. It's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church, end quote. Then Paul says, What? Do you think you can make the word of God up? If any prophet thinks he's spiritual, read what I've said to you as the Lord's command. What has Paul said to them? Paul has said that women can prophesy. Paul has said that women can pray in tongues. Paul has said that women can pray in church. And by the way, don't despise these things. Keep on going, girls. So that's a theory. It's one of the theories. It's kind of the one that I lean to. And it's interesting. But yeah, it's a little bit of a difficult passage and that's okay. But one thing we do know is that you should not take one verse, especially if it's a bit weird, and therefore discount a whole bunch of other clear stuff where women are sharing the gospel, where women are teaching men like Apollos, where women have leadership roles in the church, leadership roles in the Old Testament, and where women are encouraged to preach and prophesy, uh, to pray and preach and prophesy, whatever it is, in church. Right. Don't take all of those scriptures and discount them by one that seems a little obscure. I'm not saying ignore the word of God. I'm just saying you don't jump to a conclusion on one passage of scripture. And everybody said, Amen. One, do we have time for one more or are we done? What's that? Huh? Number six. Oh, you just wanted me to say six, didn't you? Dude, why don't you do not 
put it on the screen, but get the Passion version of John 15, 1-2. John 15, 1-2 in the Passion Bible, but don't put it on the screen. All right, we're going to have a look at cutting off fruitless branches or branches. <laughs> branches or branches. Yeah, well, I'm from New South Wales now, so I have to say branches. That's how they talk over there. Branches. I'm going to read Luke, the NIV, uh, which is the Bible that I grew up on, on John chapter 15. And this is Jesus speaking. And as we know, this is his vine teaching. Okay, here we go. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Two different types of branches connected to Christ. I think the image here is quite simple. Jesus is saying, I'm the vine. There is a collective picture of people. He's the root, he's the stem, he is the branches. It's the body of Christ's picture. Okay, And those branches are attached to him. Some of them bear fruit and some don't. The fruitful ones, he'll prune. Some of you know what that's like. I've, I've had that experience. Things cut off from me that have been part of my life to prepare for a new season of growth. But if there are branches attached to me that are fruitless, Jesus says, the gardener will cut them off. Now that to me sounds pretty damn serious. Because if you get cut off of Christ and he is the source of eternal life, that's not a good place to be. And the good, good gardener is a good, good gardener. <laughs> comes along and he sees a fruitless branch and he says, that's it. Cut off. That branch withers. That branch dies. It is cut off of Christ. Now, this would seem to say to me, and this is why it sounds so serious, is that if I'm not bearing fruit and I'm attached to Jesus, one day, and I don't know when this will happen, Did it happen yesterday? Will it happen tomorrow? But God the Father will come and he might cut me away from Jesus if I'm not bearing fruit. Now how do I know what's fruit? How do I know if I've produced enough fruit? Who measures that fruit? What kind of fruit is that? Do I have to serve at church two hours a week or 20? Is that enough? Do I have to lead one person to Christ a week or 15 people to Christ a week? Is that enough? Do I have to read the Bible one hour a day or, or 10 hours a day? What do I have to, how do I know I'm producing enough fruit so that the garden doesn't come and cut me off and I'm separated from Christ and die? How many of you know this sounds pretty serious? Come back next week and Gideon will explain. Okay, <laughs> thanks guys, everyone. Great to have you. All right. So what you do is you say, well, hang on, I'm not going to reach a conclusion. No. No. Take it away. Take it away. (laughs) What you're going to do, ignore that, that's that's not there, is you don't reach a conclusion based on one verse or one reading. Okay? You want to compare other scriptures. And you already know this doesn't sit that well with you. But it's the words of Jesus, so you're going to take them seriously. So what you're going to do is you're going to get on your Bible program and you're going to click on the words. Because I know what Jesus said, but what did he mean? Well, when you click on the word cut off, the Greek word that comes up is the word arrow. 
that's what Jesus said. It's not actually what Jesus said because he didn't speak Greek. It's what John wrote. Okay, whatever. The word was ero. And as you click on the definition of ero, ero actually has different meanings. It, yeah, no. Woman. I know. I know, I know, I know. Husband. <laughs> the Bible says arrow, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, you click on your Bible program and a whole bunch of verses will come up that describe the word arrow. And what you're going to find out is that it's about half-half. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word arrow, it means take away. Other times when the Bible uses the word arrow, same word, it means take up. And so you read through those passages and you'll find this, John 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, sounds familiar, who takes away the sin of the world. The word there's arrow. He takes away the sin of the world. There you go. John 2. To those who sold doves, he kicked the tables over and he said, Take these away from here. Arrow means take away. In John 10, no one takes my life from me. No one takes it away. I give it up on my own accord. Arrow, it means take away. If we let him go on like this, they say, everyone believe in him and the Romans will take away our temple and take away our nation. It means take away. So yes, the word arrow means take away. So it could be right that the Bible translators say, Every branch that doesn't fear fruit, he arrows, he takes away. But sometimes that same word can actually mean something else. I know that's what it says, <laughs> but what does it mean? Well, there's other verses in the Bible that use exactly the same word. Like in John 10 and John 5, exactly the same gospel, exactly the same author. I'm not mixing authors here, exactly the same book. It says that once the man was cured, a crippled man, and it said, he picked up his mat and walked. He picked up his mat. Do you know what the word picked up is? Arrow. He didn't take away his mat. He picked it up and he walked. And he picked it up and we know he didn't take it away. He picked it up because people looked at him and said, why have you picked that up? You should put it down. He picked it up. When they want to stone Jesus, it says after this in John 8, they picked up stones to stone him. They arrowed stones. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to say they took away stones. <laughs> Here's a stone. Take it away to stone Jesus. No, no, no. They picked the arrow. They picked up stones. Same word can mean take away, but can also mean pick up. At Lazarus's tomb, it says they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes to pray. Both, of the, both in that verse... The word arrow is used twice. Side by side, two different meanings. He arrowed the stone, took it away. Jesus arrowed his eyes, lifted them up. It would be stupid in English to say, they took up the stone and Jesus took away his eyes. You know, that would be a ridiculous way to translate, a ridiculous conclusion to make. But the word is arrow. The Bible says they arrowed the stone. They, he arrowed his eyes. 
And so the translators think, what's the bit? What does that mean? Oh, of course it means they lift, took away the stone, lifted up his eyes. The point is the same word can mean both things. So in John 15, we have the word arrow. A fruitless branch, God the Father will arrow. I know that's what it says, but what does it mean? Well, certain Bible translators obviously believe that it means cut off. If a branch is fruitless, it will be taken away. After all, that is what that word means in other places, and that fits my theology. So that's what it means here. But what if that's not what it means? Because other Bible translators disagree with that. And they don't change the Bible. They just insert, they just think what Jesus meant by that was something different than take away. When Jesus said, if there's a fruitless branch, I will arrow it, he meant I will lift it up. Not take it away, I will lift it up. You see, I come from wine country, South Australia, some of the best wine in the world. And when a vine, when a branch is attached to a vine and it's not bearing fruit, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it's probably not getting enough space or enough air. And number two, it's not getting enough sunlight because it's in summertime that the fruit comes. And in Israel, it's the same thing. They would have vines, and what they'd actually have to do is the vines grew, is they'd have to trellis them. I mean, in South Australia we, and in France, we trellis them. We put them on trellises so that those branches get maximum airflow, maximum sunlight. Okay, We lift them up off the ground and put them on a trellis to expose them to the sun. In Israel, they'd do the same. If a branch wasn't getting fruit, the, the gardener wouldn't come and go, stupid damn branch. No, he would lift it up and he would put, it on, he'd put rocks underneath it so that it could see the sun and not be hidden in the shade and not be lying on the dirt. He would lift that branch up. What does a good, good gardener do? Does a good, good gardener come to a branch and say, I'm going to cut this off so it will never, ever, ever have the opportunity to bear fruit ever? Or does a good gardener say, this is a branch. It's attached to my vine. It's obviously not bearing fruit for a reason. I'm not going to cut it away. I'm going to lift it up and give it the best opportunity it can. I'm going to point it towards the sun. Point that branch towards the sun. We have not just changed the Bible because it says arrow. It's just when our translators go through the process of exegesis in their mind, they have to say, I know it says arrow. But what does it mean? And some translators believe it means take away. Other translators believe it means lift up. And so if you read this Passion Bible, he puts it this way. I am the true sprouting vine. The farmer who tends the vine is my father. He cares for the branches connected to me by lifting and propping up the fruitless branches and then pruning the fruitful ones. Has this man just changed the Bible? No, he knows what it says. It says arrow. The challenge of putting it in English is to work out what does arrow mean in this context. And this is where all of us can read the Bible and we know what it says. But we can come to very different conclusions as to what it means because of presuppositions and ideas in our minds. Because we either don't do the research properly and have a look 
or we have preconceptions about the nature of God and we read into the scripture our view of who God is and maybe it's unhealthy. It's okay, we're all human, we all can do it. And I, and I for one, I'm not going to tell you what to believe but I'm going to encourage you. God is a good, good gardener. And if you are connected to Christ, if you are joined in him, and you are concerned about not producing enough fruit, I think I can tell you on pretty good authority, God will not cut you off. Because that to me does not fit everything I know, not only about the nature of God, but also about the security of salvation because we are permanently positioned in him. How dare you think that you can undo the work of my Jesus at Calvary by simply not bearing enough fruit this week? Do you really think you're more powerful than Jesus? Do you think that your fruitlessness is, is more powerful than what Jesus died for? Jesus died for you. He paid an awesome price for you. He secured your salvation. I don't think you can be as arrogant to think that your little sinning can undo that work. It was a powerful work. It was an insanely good work. Your potential or your seeming lack of fruitlessness should not get you scared of God. It should get you to cry out to a good, good gardener and say, Lord, I'm not being as fruitful as I'd like. Maybe I need help to be exposed to the sun. Exposed to the sun. And that's what a church like this would do for you. A church like this provide a garden environment where the Father is here. This is what this worship team is doing. Every, every time we gather together, they are directing you and pointing you to the sun because all of us want to bear fruit. All of us want to bear fruitful. And it's not about us trying to bear more fruit. It's not about us trying to be more in Jesus. Maybe I'm not connected to him properly. No, you are connected with him. You just need to lift your eyes, step out in the space a little bit, get a bit of breath, get a bit of fresh air around you, all right? And point your eyes to the sun and you will bear fruit as you look to him. And everybody said, amen. I think that's probably all I can do. We've had a big weekend. We are an all Bible people. And to understand what the Bible means and to know what to really do with it, you need, we, we want to learn and appreciate the Bible's big story and we want to make sure that as we read the scripture, we compare scripture with scripture because the Bible is a big boy. He'll defend himself, okay? He will explain himself. He will defend himself. Please endeavor to be an all-Bible people. And as you do, remember this. It is all about pointing you towards Jesus. Not that you would know a book better because eternal life is not found by knowing a book. Eternal life is found by knowing the son whom that book reveals. And so continue to eat the scroll, but continue to feast on the lamb. Because he is the one that will sustain you. In Jesus' name. Amen.